top of Arsenal, Metal Sparks fly. Hello and welcome back to the Battle of North London podcast. This week we have got a special guest in Daniel G. He's a sports uh, football lawyer, um, an author of the book A Done Deal. Um, he's, we're here to kind of talk about how transfers work, contracts, football clubs, um, Arsenal and Spurs related maybe, see what really goes on behind the scenes that we don't get to see really. Um, and just learn a bit more about football clubs in general. Um, and I think it's very fascinating the sort of job you do and sort of what you're kind of involved in. I think everyone wants to know what goes on, but no one really finds a way to find out. So, so this is this is this is really good. And thanks for doing this. Um, thanks for having. For, no for a start, I think it's interesting. Because Arsenal and Spurs, basically, we're since it is an Arsenal and Spurs podcast, we're both clubs that have recently built brand new stadiums, um, and kind of I think we're the two most recent clubs in in the Premier League to do so. And just how much of an impact the stadiums and the stadiums revenue from match day or club sponsorships actually have an effect on the club? Is that why is it so big that the club spends so much money on it? Yeah, 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 I think the there's a few different perspectives. Ultimately, I think the first perspective is it's important to see it as a wider context, which is um, you know match day revenues for some clubs form a disproportionately large amount of the overall revenue pie, and for a lot of clubs also that are disproportionately um, reliant on broadcasting revenues for the vast majorities of their income. So. There is always a playoff between deciding what, as a club, you are going to be more reliant upon. Now, it might well be that you want to try and be less reliant on any one element for um, risk diversifying. But along with that, if you are making more match day revenue, usually it means it comes through different types of capital investment. And in both Arsenal and Spurs, it's been um, new stadiums which have meant different types of debt and that uh, interest payments have had to be serviced on accordingly. So in the same way as that moving from White Hart Lane to the new stadium, um, that effectively has brought um, a large amount of at least debt that needs to be financed um, in part through interest payments, in part through capital repayments. And in a way, I mean, although it's pretty easy, I guess, to be able to say it will or won't have an impact on the on-field stuff, transfer spending, wages, etc. The long-term position for clubs like Arsenal and Spurs are obviously um, uh, really good. The short-term issue is there's higher opportunity cost if you are paying off higher interest payments, if you have larger debts to pay. It becomes difficult to be able to balance that with the on-field side in the same way that Arsenal had to do when they moved into the Emirates with, with um, Arsene Wenger, I think, saying on a number of occasions his job, in a way, was to balance the books more. It was a way to make sure he had a competitive squad get into the Champions League year on year, but also understand that um, they had um, stadium debt to, uh, to effectively service. Um, so, so, so people talk though about like the reason to building it is for match day revenue. Like, is that really where it comes from? Was it more about getting that 
sponsorship, naming rights, that sort of thing, because Tottenham still haven't named their stadium. Yeah, that doesn't necessarily mean they haven't been trying, which I'm sure I know most people have been reported to know that they have done. It might just be that's a valuation point rather than anything else. But I think that the wider point also is, is that if from uh, an asset growth perspective, you the owners of a club are able to demonstrate that revenues and effectively profit uh, and margins can grow by a certain percentage because of the investment that then is undertaken through stadium, through youth development, through training ground facilities and the, the benefits that they bring. It obviously makes the club potentially at least a lot more valuable from a reoccurring revenue generation perspective. So I think it can be seen from um, match day trying to become a greater portion of the revenue pie, but also from a club valuation perspective, trying to demonstrate that there are greater revenues because of the investment made into the stadium and associated revenue streams like food and beverage, like naming rights, like um, non-stadium day um, events, music events, etc. So, so there's this, there's been this uh, sort of internal conflict within Spurs fans, the fan the fan group um, of some who sort of have this nostalgic feeling towards the old stadium, and some who look forward to um, this new, amazing stadium. Um, which which side which which uh, if you have to, if you had to pick a side, and would you say was was more correct? And more to the point is is that. Um, I think a lot of you, what you do is you demystify and, and you explain uh, some con con concepts that might seem um, more, more complicated for people to understand. What, what would, like, could you, like, stuff like, like uh, re refinancing loans, stuff like that, that could, could seem like, like an accountant something or, or something that maybe the regular fan may not understand. What, what could you maybe de demystify some of those terms and sort of go into more, more depth on, on, on how, for example, Spurs can still spend loads of significant money um, while being in debt? Yeah, I mean, it fits into a wider thing to do with financial fair play, which I guess in a way we'll come on to in due course. But I think ultimately what I think Spurs have obviously done really well from a from a profit and revenue generation perspective is that on the whole, they have generally over the years made profit, which is relatively unheard of in EPL history until the financial fair play rules came in and the Premier League equivalent rules came in. So if, if we're talking about which is the better model, old stadium and lower match day revenues mixed with the same level of broadcasting rights and success, whether that then impinges on the club's ability to be able to spend ultimately uh, from an FFP perspective, but also from a general club accounting perspective on the whole, clubs have got to break even. They've got to be self-sustaining to a large degree. And whilst at the same time putting quite a lot of debt on um, a club in different ways. It could be through the acquisition of a club like the Glazers did, or it could be um, like um, uh, the Spurs ownership team has done through effectively, um, you know, financing a world-class stadium in order to then increase match day revenues and associated revenues. You know, far be it from me to be the one that tells Daniel Levy otherwise that he's doing the wrong thing, because over a significant period of time, from a financial perspective, you know, he's been uber successful. The question always is, and it's the same with any club around the country um, and in Europe and across the world, is how do you measure success? If you're measuring success by a sustainable uh, model whereby generally um, you're breaking even, but you're not necessarily earning glory, you're not winning trophies, maybe you're not qualifying into the Champions League, maybe you're not winning the Premier League, etc., then ultimately 
generally fans will want a balance of all of that. They'll want to see success on and off the pitch. But usually what happens, one is sometimes out of kilter from the other. No one really cares, is truth be told, I think there's a lot of fans. So, uh, you know, any team makes a large profit if that isn't reinvested into the club and the team in different respects. In the same way as that everything isn't usually perfect off the field if the team is playing brilliantly on the field, one thing usually follows the other. If a team looks like it's being successful on the pitch, then you, usually the reporting from off the pitch is, look how wonderful the commercial team's doing, be able to find this deal and this deal. But that's usually because that club then is front and centre because they're winning the EPL, they're getting to the latest stages of the Champions League, they're playing attractive football, they can buy great players, and the, and the circle goes on. Well, yeah, it's interesting there because... You see like clubs like Man United and Arsenal who are very money making clubs, let's call them, who who don't who haven't spent as much as other teams and have had in recent years less success. But then you have clubs like Man City and Chelsea who have spent huge amounts but they've been winning. So from a but from a fan's perspective, we think initially especially from an Arsenal fan and also, lots of Man United fans will say that's not success, though. So, how will a club view, like, how important is it for a club to do well in these competitions, even though they're making the money? Well, there's different things, and it's I'd probably say different eras as well. I mean, Chelsea's um, huge net spend was at the time when Mr. Bramovich came in before the FFP regulations came in, and then we had effectively Manchester City. Uh, and their ownership group come in more or less right on the cusp of FFP and into the new era of more prudent financial, sustainable spending. So, you know, at the same time, I think it's important to note that when we're talking about different levels of spending, uh, Manchester United have still spent uh, an awful lot of money, um, but they are able to because they have huge commercial contracts in place that um, effectively, not subsidise, but allow them to be able to spend um, a type of money. The important thing to note is, you know, even, I think it was in one of the latest uh, Deloitte reports, that, you know, a large percentage of the top 20 revenue generating clubs in Europe are all from the Premier League simply because of the broadcasting monies. And that has an equalizing effect in the, in the Premier League. You know, if bottom place club is earning over £75 million per season on central distributions and the top club is earning over £150 million, probably going to be closer to 170 this year, um, that's a significant amount of money for any of the clubs to be able to make, you know, substantive um, transfer fee and wage investments into into their squad. So it, it allows, you know, the likes of Leicester, who, you know, have had a fantastic season, but they've had a fantastic season because they've been able to buy some very good players during that period as well and actually put them on pretty good wages. So I almost think that it's important to see the Premier League in context as one thing because of the monies that are able to be distributed. Granted, there are huge commercial revenues outside of the central distributions for different sponsorship deals. And then in a way, there is another market for those clubs outside maybe the top four or five clubs across Europe that are not able to compete from a financial perspective with, with most Premier League clubs. And then it becomes whether the clubs can recruit effectively, um, efficiently, identify the right type of targets, look at the type of profiling that they're, that they're looking, going for. Like, the example I always give, sorry to go off on one a bit, is I was really interested in Arsenal's recruitment drive a couple of years ago because, you know, Arsenal effectively, out of, relatively out of character, I guess, to a degree, bought two uh, proven 
um, prem, uh, not Premier League, but two proven strikers for premium prices at uh, peak age. And they more or less knew at that point in, in Bamiyang and Lacazette, at that point, they more or less knew that the money that they were paying in transfer fees, they were probably not going to get back um, because they were buying proven uh, goal scorers that were going to do hopefully do the job for the next few seasons on very big wages. Now, that's one strategy to go for. Others have gone for another a completely different strategy. Liverpool, for example, if FSG started a different strategy with younger up-and-coming players and then pivoted away from that to a degree when they bought Allison and Van Dijk and others. So, again, again, sorry going off on one, but it just depends on the, the type of strategy that a club is implementing mixed with clever spending because most Premier League clubs are able to spend significantly because they are in that Premier League and because they have significant sums on a season-by-season basis. You were just saying, though, how other clubs like Leicester are kind of just being able to get into it now. But from from what we hear most of the time, it's a lot of the time it's TV money is is where all of it's coming from. But how is that not benefiting the smaller teams as much as it is the bigger teams? Because surely there's a disparity there that they can't compete still, even though there's this huge TV money. Yeah, I mean, look... There's still a disparity even in terms of television money from bottom to top. It's around 50 million pounds and possibly even a little bit more. And then over and above those, you usually have a few sources of revenues, which are the match day revenues through stadium that we talked about previously. And then the variety of sponsorship deals. So there's obviously a huge commercial chasm between the likes of Manchester United, Manchester City and then Burnley or Watford or one of the smaller clubs in, in the Premier League generally that don't have that same commercial offering but on the pitch can match most of those clubs week in week out i think what i'm what i'm probably trying to uh, eke out is that in a way there are a variety of different competitions going on there's probably a top six competition going on at the best of times at the top of the premier league and outside of that if a club has a bad run of 15 or 20 games there's a likelihood that that team could be drawn into a, um, a relegation dogfight now outside of the premier league there is then a wider discussion about whether having two dominant uh, Premier League because of the broadcasting rights has a com- makes a competitive advantage for those Premier League clubs competing in Champions League and Europa League. You only have to look to, I know it might have been a, um, um, a, a relative outlier with the top uh, with four EPL teams getting to the, the finals of both competitions last year, but you can see the strength of those teams over the, a few seasons now. And then the question becomes, you know, outside of a dominant Premier League and a dominant, you know, PSG, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Munich, Dortmund, where are the next competitor teams going to come from, from outside of the, so I'm missing a few Italian clubs, Juve, but outside of those teams, you know, who, who are going to be able to challenge those established elite clubs that are building huge revenues, granted in broadcasting rights, but also in terms of vast commercial revenues from all of the different branding deals they can do. Um, so yeah, so sorry. So like you're saying there, it, the Premier League has a lot more of a benefit than other countries. But if you look at specifically just even this country, you look at the Championship and moving this towards financial fair play a bit. QPR have the biggest have the biggest. Um, I think it was the biggest fine ever from financial fair play because of they were they thought they had the Premier League money, but then they're getting relegated. 
Is that really a problem because of financial fair play? The issue it's now having, because of TV money, clubs think we can spend, but in realistic, they still have to be very careful. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's pretty fair to say that, you know, the, the, the playoff game, the championship game into the Premier League could be worth over, you know, £200 million, just that one game, simply because one season in the Premier League and then the parachute payments that any relegated club gets for them going back into the championship. Now, mixed with those revenues are obviously just exactly as you mentioned, the the profitability and sustainability regulations, which is basically the Premier League and Championship equivalent of the financial fair play rules, and then the financial fair play rules themselves. So UEFA financial fair play rules themselves for teams playing in European competition. So there are much stricter cost control measures in place than there were a decade ago. Uh, and that's, I think, a very important point. QPR and others, um, Birmingham City, I think, as well, more recently, but then also um, in UEFA competition as well, plenty of clubs have been either have entered into settlement agreements, which have been more or less, um, you know, agreed punishments for potential breaches of the regulations. Um, and some have even been banned. The AC Milan were banned relatively recently. Um, Galatasaray and a number of Turkish clubs have had problems too. So the, the, general, the general point, the example that you gave, which is QPR um, and how that ultimately was resolved, was... Um, you're seeing less and less clubs making significant losses because under the UEFA rules, under the Premier League rules, under the Championship rules, it's just simply not permitted. And if there are those breaches, then uh, pretty stringent sanctions can be imposed. You need to look at the the issues going on with, I believe it's um, Sheffield Wednesday um, and other clubs, whereby they've effectively sold and leased back their stadiums because they'd have otherwise been in breach potentially of the, the financial fair play rules. So there's you know a number of these types of regulatory financial issues which are going to crop up more because ultimately the authorities want to guard against insolvencies, against a lack of long-term financial planning, against the reactionness of the reactivity of effectively clubs trying to stretch themselves beyond their means and the implications that that can have ultimately for the fans if the clubs go into administration and, you know, even worse with, with Barry and the rest. Okay, so um, we've dealt with, the, I think we've dealt with the QPR issue and the issue of, of lower, lower league teams um, who have the, the parachute payments and, and these sort of um, such problems and, and uh, arrangements for them. Um, but I think the, the one that people, has been has been in the news recently is, is the Man City um, affair. Um, it, it really it, it touches on a lot of issues um, as as to whether whether they'll actually get the ban, um, what they've done, um, but I think that the the point that I want to uh, I want to uh, discuss is um, what do you think that the the potential ban of, of Man City or, or whatever punishment they end up receiving, um, what do you think that means for the future of um, of, uh, of 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 FFP um, of of money in football? Do you think that FFP that these if these punishments are effective, that they can break the the like top six uh, chokehold on on the or top four top six on on the on the on the title in Champions League? Um, do you think that FFP and do you think um, the, the 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 potential punishment on Man City um, will be uh, effective in that. I think it's important just to go back to basics, which is ultimately um, what FFP was there to do. And as we briefly mentioned, that the, the whole idea of FFP was to try and keep revenues balancing with costs and to provide that long-term sustainability 
of clubs to make sure they're self-sustainable and that their long-term financial health is more or less secured. Ultimately, the question that um, uh, is occurring with Manchester City at the moment is UEFA believe through their independent bodies that the club overstated their sponsorship revenues, which allowed them then to be able to buy more players and to be able to pay them more than they otherwise would have done. And that, to a degree, if you if you believe what UEFA are going to be saying at the Court of Arbitration for Sport Cats, effectively um, demonstrates that they've been able to have a competitive advantage by being able to use those inflated revenues. Now, you know, I the point I guess is that I get asked a lot, which is, you know, what's going to happen? Is Man City going to win at the Cats? Um, are they going to have the the ban increased, decreased, etc.? And the truth is, is that you know anybody that can try and give you a definitive answers probably not quite telling the truth or they have some more information they're always willing to give because unfortunately the UEFA decision hasn't been made public i.e. it's not been published so we don't know the information that UEFA is using to base the the sanction at present and we don't know what irrefutable evidence Manchester City allegedly provided to UEFA to demonstrate that they weren't overstating their sponsorship revenues. The, the more interesting questions now are one of timing because all of what you've said links into the next few months. Forget cor- coronavirus to a degree, even that's obviously a crazy problem that's going on in fo- football and across the globe in terms of what's going to happen. But one of the, the important elements for the financial football financial systems is going to be um, how quickly this matter can be resolved at, at the CAS. Is it something that can be resolved by June or is it going to be pushed further out because it's a pretty complicated, substantive matter that needs to be, you know, dealt with in detail. So the, the next steps, you know, um, Sereno, the, the, the Manchester City Chief Executive, effectively stated when he gave a video about a couple of weeks ago interview, stated that he thought that this was going to be possibly resolved by June, which I thought was quite interesting, actually, as to whether Manchester City was just trying to get this done quickly or not postpone, but postpone or freeze the ban pending the outcome of the decision, which might take a number of months. But if what we think is Manchester City's approach, that they want to get this done speedily, um, then the query is where the CAS will uphold UEFA's decision, because the ban is in place at present, um, or whether then there will be a reduction in the ban, there can be an increase in the ban as well if necessary. And after that then, if Manchester City ban at least, at least for one season is upheld, it's complete speculation at the moment, um, that fifth place um, gets into the Champions League, which is obviously incredibly lucrative for that um, fifth place team. Um, it's it's very interesting. People are very unaware, I think, right now what the situation is with Man City, and because the UEFA have done their ban, there's no talks yet about the FA if they want to do anything. There've been talks about Man City getting relegated and that sort of thing. Um, but what I'm most interested in is. From a player's perspective and from a manager's perspective, they both, Guardiola has said he's going to stick around, whatever happens. Sterling has said the same thing. Do you think, is there stuff that the players can do if they're very unhappy with the situation and force their way out, basically? I, you know, I, the, the forcing way out is always the big headline, but ultimately, I think, let's just say theoretically, the ban is upheld and, every, and City have a two-year um, Champions League ban. You know, 
what what can be the case across lots of different clubs, I'm sure Manchester City included, but generally in terms of contractual provisions, is that that, that Manchester City and other clubs, players, will be incentivized for playing, i.e. paid a decent proportion, possibly a decent proportion of their wages, or a big bonus for playing uh, Champions League football. So th there is a query about whether agents at different times will be speaking. I'm sure they will be speaking to the Manchester City executives to explain that if and you know if the ban is upheld, for example, that there needs to be some recompense because ultimately the players did their job in getting um, uh, Manchester City into the Champions League, but unfortunately there's been a ban in place. So there's a query over whether. Um, uh, Champions League payments may still need to be paid to, to particular players to keep them there. There is also a question about then whether Manchester City will. There's a question over whether Manchester City can afford to bring in new world-class players and then retain the current crop simply because a two-year ban from the Champions League might be worth over 130, 140, 150 million pounds um, uh, by way of additional um, revenue generation to the club now. Swiss Ramble talked about it recently in his really cool tw Twitter thread about actually the net amount um, of revenue reduction would possibly be um, only 20 or 30 million pounds because of some um, revenue uplifts for commercial deals from not having to pay particular bonuses, etc. But there's no doubt and match day revenues, etc. But there's no doubt that it's going to significantly impact from a performance basis because it's more difficult to obviously track players if you've got a two year ban in Europe. Um, and then also it may be more difficult to retain some players that, you know, maybe are approaching the, the, you know, the peak years of their careers and not being able to test themselves in elite competition. But that will just be on a case-by-case, player-by-player, agent-by-agent basis. Can a player just straight up refuse? Can a, could, could a manager player just straight up refuse to play? And what will happen then with their wages or stuff like that? So if, if the idea is refusing to play because they believe that Manchester City isn't complying with its employment contract or otherwise, I think that's a tricky, I think that's a tricky um, course to go down. It's not saying it can't, won't necessarily happen. I think it's unlikely to happen um, because then what would usually happen, if you remember correctly, when I know it was contested whether Tevez refused to come off the bench for a Manchester City Champions League game, I think I remember a few years ago when Mancini was the manager. Um, and then effectively what happens is a disciplinary process is effectively started. Um, and that disciplinary process can lead to, um, you know, wages being docked to warnings as to, um, to um, uh, uh, conduct that might happen in the future, um, to making sure they're training with the first team squad and making sure they're available for selection, etc. And then in extreme situations, it may be possible for the club if the player is continuing continuing not to follow club instruction, you know, to, to make more severe um, sanctions imposed. But I think, again, that's un relatively unlikely because ultimately the players are significant assets. They, um, they will have large transfer fees that um, they will be valued at. And although they have significant wages, ultimately, you know, it would take a pretty strong um, course of action for any club to decide to want to, you know, drop a bit sack a player or do anything along those lines. So I, th I think there's an, there's an issue that's been, I mean, th you mentioned it in your previous answer um, about coronavirus is that this contract, uh, can players refuse it in, in the case of Man City? Is, is it it's sort of a different issue as to, there's the queries, which I, which I, th I think is quite um, pressing, is that um, if 
if theor theoretically um, some some games are behind, some some games are cancelled, um, some some fans aren't allowed in, and, and all these sort of um, precautions are taken, can a player who let's say has um, who has a clause that they have to play a certain percentage of get percentage of games, if they don't reach that because of coronavirus, are there contractual um, contractual clauses that, that that account for that and like can can a player um can a player will, will, will a player's contract be respected if 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 that if that happens yeah it, it depends in a number of situations i don't think that you know at the moment there are games that have been cancelled but a lot have been played behind closed doors so you know if you if the player's playing matches then he's still going to be entitled to um uh the the wages under his employment contract Query whether games are cancelled and whether they can't reach certain milestones. That's ultimately a variable pay point. You know, there have been cases in the, not cases, but instances of the past. I remember when Portsmouth were in um, financial difficulty back uh, at the beginning of last decade, where um, they knew that by a player playing a certain amount of games, it effectively um, triggered a new contract year. So they weren't willing to if they're at 29 games and then got to 30 games, that would trigger a new year, one year contract. So in some instances, then the club wouldn't necessarily play the player for the rest of that season because they didn't want to incur that extra liability. Coronavirus is a different one because it may well be that clubs have other issues to do with whether if, um, uh, if stadia are closed down, whether the ticketing terms and conditions allow for, you know, um, that to actually happen. And then are reimbursements necessary? Is it prorated? Who's going to necessarily lose money? Is it going to be credited? All of those types of issues, which become pretty tricky ones to, to deal with too. So, you know, it's um, uh, it's a difficult one. It's the same with, you know, as a, as a Liverpool fan. And one of the issues impacting at the moment is whether, you know, hopefully we get to, to the league title this season, but whether Liverpool might actually win the league title at Anfield to an empty stadium, which would be horrendous, really, is the truth. And the same for, you know, any type of trophy procession or otherwise, if you can't, you know, then, um, um, you know, lift the, the Premier League trophy in front of um, a crowd or audience across Liverpool. So, you know, you know, these are... It seems like, you know, the UK government came out today and said we're still in the containment period, etc. Um, but, you know, these are the things that are probably going to manifest to a great extent inside the next couple of months. And, you know, the advice today was that, you know, it's the, the, the coronavirus spread is going to be significant in the next few months. So, you know, it's probably a few difficult times ahead, I think. I think that um, there, there's also there's all sorts of contractual uh, situations and problems that can be caused, as, as you've uh, referenced. Um but I think that um, that's just to move on to, to another to another uh, issue that's been quite relevant in the news as well. Is the is the um, the issue of uh, of transfers and, and of of um, of the the Barcelona Leganes, uh, Martin Braithwaite, uh, La Liga. The, I don't know what what the the case would be called. Um, but um, there's this problem that that um, that. As, as in Spain, all players are required to have uh, release clauses in their contract, um, and the, the the case was was the, uh, as you know that uh, Braithwaite was triggered by Barcelona, um, and, and that, then of course it was, there was the controversy about about Leganes. Um, is there any any possibility of this um, of of this like uh, this rule being being implemented where you can have a player um, who can be signed? Um, due to a, a severe injury or, or, or unforeseen circumstances, is is that in place, or could that be in place? Yeah, I think it. I think it's uh, pretty unlikely. It just, it, you know, it didn't. It didn't feel particularly fair. <laughs> I think it's fair to say 
Um, especially, I think, because also Barcelona loaned out a few of their strikers in that window as well, then had a couple of you know longer-term injuries and then effectively weakened um, you know another competitor within their league by being able to um, being able to trigger that clause. So there's lots of things. I think obviously the point worth making is that in the UK release clauses are much less widespread. So um, and sometimes confidential. So you might not do, the club might do not even know about it. But I think it would take something um, pretty exceptional for for that that type of similar event to occur um, in the EPL. It just yeah it didn't 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 sit right with a lot of people. That's for sure. Well, there's lots of different like clauses and ways of transfers right now. Um, the new thing that's kind of been happening, though, is this loan deals with option to buys, obligation to buy. What are kind of the reasoning now for all of this? Is it is it just clubs want to have a trial run with players? Because it seems to be happening a lot, especially in January. There was a lot of loan deals talked about, but never anything else. Mm. I just think it's another tool in a club's armory, effectively, that depending on negotiation positions, because a lot of the time it can be the the loan um, can still the loan fee could sometimes still be significant. Um, it may well be that the wages are significant as well for the the buying club, and it may well be that ultimately it's just another way, as you said, of de-risking. Which is if you're able to be able to see the player at close quarters um, uh, and actually realise that. Um, uh, the play is actually pretty good or conversely not that great. Um, there can be potentially certain ways usually to trigger a permanent transfer, just like in the Celso's case. Um, and then also for it to potentially um, uh, trigger some type of reversion back to parent club if actually things aren't working out well. So um, that's the tricky thing. I think there was there was talk of whether the Coutinho two-year, I think Bayern's got a two-year loan for Coutinho, I think it was potentially, whether that was um, of a similar type of nature. But ultimately, you know, I think what, what what I think clubs are doing well, really, is be able to find lots of different options that satisfy their financial, sporting and performance needs. You know, in the past, you'd usually have a, a loan, which would at the most be for a year. Um, otherwise, it would be permanent deals. I think now you're sort of getting the best of both worlds where clubs are selling clubs are being able to still get a decent loan fee, which then may be taken away from the overall transfer fee. Um, otherwise, then you might have loans with still the view to a permanent. Uh, and then you may have the opposite, which is a loan which then is made a permanent if certain objective triggers are met, i.e. they play a certain amount of games or they you know, um, uh, appear in a certain amount of first-team appearances, etc., or you know, get called up for particular international squads, etc. So there can be certain triggers which then would make a loan um, then a, a permanent within a particular period of time. So I just think it's clubs being creative and or sometimes clubs being in stronger or weaker negotiation positions that can then allow for a longer loan period. Uh, are we going to start seeing this for a majority of transfers? Is that um, we're going to have this eight, with Spurs 18 month um, with option to buy or obligation to buy? Are we going to start seeing this with most with most transfers, or is, is, as a as a sort of uh, strategy, uh, a financial strategy? It can be all of the above, really. I mean, it'll be interesting to see the general ratio of loan with a view to a permanent as opposed to just permanent or and or loans. So I, I just I, I think almost it just gets added into the flexibility of clubs to be able to do different things. It may well be that sometimes loans are also there because, um, you know, um, a, a, 
a, a coach might not be there for two or three years. So ultimately, you sometimes don't want to make huge investments um, whereby a coach might might like a person or a player who might not want them. Or, you know, a club sees that they want a bit more flexibility within their playing squad rather than paying, you know, 50, 60, 70 million euros. I know it can sometimes be less or more. You know, you pay a lower loan fee, which could then hopefully um, give you flexibility later down the line if they fit or don't fit in with current managers or future managers' plans. Well, a loan with an option to um, with an option to buy kind of makes sense to me, but what are the reasons a club would do with a loan with an obligation to buy? Like, that's just one. What's the reasons they're not paying the transfers up front, really? So, what's uh, say that again? So, what's the reason for it being um, obligatory to buy rather than just there being an option? Yeah, uh, why would a club bother to do that, really, instead of paying a transfer? Well, the, well, the, the, lots of different things. Ultimately, um, the benefit is usually that a loan will be cheaper to be able to finance than a permanent deal. Ultimately, then you de-risk the player potentially because they may only be a one or two year. And then if everything goes to plan or doesn't go to plan, they revert to their parent club. So the financial liability is obviously significantly less in terms of the transfer fee amortized over the length of the contract and then the potential wages. So, you know, it might be in everybody's interest that everybody has a bit more flexibility in mind rather than permanent transfer. Because if you recall as well on the flip side of it, what could sometimes then be the case if you if you take a permanent uh, transfer as the example, sometimes there could be sell-on fees, there can be other types of mechanisms whereby the selling club can still get some significant upside of trying to sell um, a very good player. Um, but they might need the money. Maybe they want to go in a different tactical direction. Maybe the manager doesn't like them. You know, there's always tons of reasons why that might be the case or not. No, I understand that with an option to buy. But what I'm saying is, though, with an obligation, when the club has to pay the transfer at the end of it, what like they're paying the transfer, I assume, anyway. Or is that like term... Am I not hearing it correctly? Is it not the way it sounds? Uh, I think. Well, I think there, if there's an obligation, all that happens really is that the the, the transfer fee won't be paid until the end of the, uh, the end of the loan period. So there can sometimes be cash flow reasons why. But ultimately, what can also happen is the loan fee, depending on what the negotiation position might be, might be deducted from the valuation of the transfer fee. So that there, there can be lots of reasons. So, for example, it was understood at the time that Mbappe when he moved from Monaco to, um, uh, uh, to PSG, ultimately that was in part due to try and um, ensure that, that PSG can, uh, can, um, effectively uh, was allowed to um, adhere to the FFP rules because the original loan fee was a lot less than the actual transfer fee a year down the line. So there might be cash flow reasons why a loan with an obligation is better than just an uh, than just a straight transfer in the first place. Um, so uh, the, the, this is the, the I mean this is argument that, that Spurs fans have been having, and Spurs fans and Arsenal fans have been having for a while. I mean when when this when this Pepe uh, transfer happened, um, there was the, the, there was the, the, there was debate and, and a bit of confusion as to um, whether there was the the the, 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 the fee was seventy two million was that was up front or was I mean the, but basically I'm asking is that. Um, 
how how is it do how do these transfers really work? So, like, so when do Arsenal really spend seventy two million? Do they have less money now to spend this? When this is that is that all dependent on on different factors and and how do how do instalments versus upfront uh, transfers? How, how, what is that that uh, uh, trend? Yeah, the, well, the, the basic position usually is is that you know let's just say Pepe. 80 million pound transfer i'm not quite sure the exact number whatever it might have been or not been in the end um but then what could happen and usually is the case is that um arsenal would have paid that in installments so even though it would have said 80 million pounds transfer or whatever the amount is but let's just say 80 million um that might have been the case that arsenal would have paid let's just say 20 million per year over four years so four years worth of 20 million pounds installments but outside or inside of that, it may well be that 80 million isn't the, the guaranteed number. It might actually be that 60 million is the guaranteed number and 20 million is based on particular variables like does he appear in a certain amount of games? Does he lead then Arsenal to Champions League qualification? Does he lead them to um, uh, winning the Premier League or winning the Champions League, etc.? So what an 80 million pound transfer might actually only be 60 million pounds guaranteed and spread over a particular period of time with 20 million, for example, worth of variables which are only hit if certain performance-related measures are effectively hit. So th that, that can be the basics, which are usually transfer fees are paid in installments, and usually there is a split between what is the guaranteed payment, i.e. regardless of any performance, and the contingent payments, which are very much specifically targeted at particular performance and whether those performance measures are hit. So, so what you're saying essentially is Arsenal haven't actually spent that money yet. So even though they'll be spending it in the long term, they haven't spent it yet. So then, but, but will clubs, even though they've not technically spent it, as in it's still coming in instalments, will clubs take that into account with how much they can spend in every window? Or is it just, because it, it still then surely is a factor because they're still spending that money. Yeah, the liability is there, more or less. And, but that, that's not a new thing. Most clubs throughout the world, on the whole, within reason, most clubs will pay in instalments. So, in effect, every, if everyone's paying in instalments, everybody's got the same proportion to be able to spend within their own budget still. Now, some clubs do pay up front a more significant amount, and some clubs will want to receive a significant amount up front if they are in a strong negotiation position. But that can vary on time to time. Ultimately, no club is going to know which other clubs have um, uh, installments and what those potential contingent liabilities might be in future years. So, you know, ultimately, it's up to the, the, the buying club to be able to make that offer on the, put that offer on the table, depending on what their you know, financial capacity is to be able to get a deal over the line. And just very briefly as well, apologies, but I've got to go in a couple of minutes, is what can also happen is... You know, as much as the advertised transfer fee can be a, a big part of the overall package, the players' wages are obviously hugely significant and can sometimes even eclipse um, what the transfer fee might be. So, you know, an £80 million transfer might not quite be £80 million because of the fixed versus contingent amount, but also, you know, a, a, a significant proportion of the overall package will be taken up um, in terms of player wages as well. So, you know, you could be looking... It's an 80 million pound transfer, the actual liability being, you know, 140, 150 million pounds over the length of that player's contract. 
Okay, just just to wrap up, just to give give us uh, the, the rest of the country um, and uh, every non Liverpool fan a bit of hope. Is there any hope at all that the, the, the title will be stopped to, to going from going to Liverpool? It's a, it's a, probably one of the meanest questions I've ever heard anyone ask me. <laughs> Sorry. But, um, yeah. I, well, there, there's no actual interesting bit. There's no actual seemed like there's no actual defined regulation for what happens in those in these instances, fortunately and unfortunately. So, you know, I think at the moment, you know, with Liverpool needing mathematically two more wins and possibly less if Arsenal do manage to do with Liverpool a favour come Wednesday night, then um, you know, I'll, I'll be your best friend. That's for sure. <laughs> okay all right thanks so much um really interesting really insightful um very helpful um just to learn a bit more so yeah thank you so much for your help it was great having you on pleasure um, thanks for having me all right so thank you so much for listening that was daniel g um um football lawyer and author if you want to go and get his book um it's called done deal very interesting i've had a good read of it um so, yeah, thank you so much for listening. Please like, share, do whatever you can to um, help the podcast. Um, rate us five stars on Spotify, on, on iTunes. That's always helpful. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Come on, come on, come on. Come on.